When we discuss tax policy, the conversation inevitably turns to who pays, who should pay, and how much they should pay. Unfortunately, the tax burden debate is often missing a key point, how income transfer programs, like Social Security and Medicaid, affect households' tax burdens. When looking at the whole picture, just how progressive is our tax code? And when taking this into consideration, do lawmakers at the state and federal level have the right priorities in mind when they consider tax reforms and interstate competition? Hello, and welcome to The Deduction, a Tax Foundation podcast. My name is Jesse Solis, Communications Manager here at the Tax Foundation. And this week, making his deduction podcast debut, we are joined by our senior policy analyst, Timothy Vermeer. Tim, welcome to the show. Hey, Jesse. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Before we get into the the kind of meat of our episode, can we just learn a little bit about you? You know, we try to use this podcast to promote our work, promote our experts. And since this is your first time here, let's, let's hear who you are. So, Tim, how did you get into the tax policy world? Well, I grew up in a, a high-tax state that bordered a low-tax state, and I lived in the town right on the border. So I felt a bit like I was living in kind of a natural experiment where you would go from, you know, my, my house three miles east to the gas station in the other state, and you'd wonder why, you know, gas is 40 cents cheaper over there. Why does everything look shinier across the border? And uh, so that always kind of intrigued me. You know, it was like the only real difference between the two places was that somebody had drawn a, a line down the middle, uh, down the middle of the road. And um, the only real difference otherwise was the tax policies, it seemed. So that always kind of intrigued me. So I spent some time in the military after college, but uh, decided to kind of pursue a couple of different interests after a while and thought I'd get back into pursue my interest in public policy. So I started chasing the, uh, the tax route again and um, found myself here at the Tax Foundation a couple of years ago. And uh, it's been a great opportunity to kind of, you know, really apply what I've learned to improve people's livelihoods, uh, the community that I came from. So that's uh, it's kind of come full circle now. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I do think it's interesting when people first realize, you know, taxes make a difference in their lives. Um, slightly different. I grew up in a border town too, if you will. And I had a lot of friends' dads who would drive 20 minutes to go get cigarettes on the other side of the state line to avoid taxes. Um, yeah. So slight, slightly different than uh, that. Um, yeah. But let's get into it. So Tim, recently you um, and some members on our federal team, um, as well as someone else on the state team, uh, released this new report, uh, kind of looking at the progressivity of our tax code and kind of getting really into what's missing from the debate. And before we get into that report, um, let's take one step back. Um, often when taxes get brought up right away, you hear who is not paying enough, who is paying too much, who should be paying more, um, where should you know tax hikes go? And it often centers around fairness when we get into that. Um, now, I'm sure there's Cicero laying around the office somewhere, but we're not gonna debate fairness today. That isn't really you know our cup of tea, um, but I do think you know, we can talk about just how progressive tax codes are. So big picture, Tim, at the state level, just how progressive is our tax code overall? Well, I think overall, it's quite progressive. I think most of that progressivity comes in from the federal side. And if you just look at the tax codes of state and local governments, you end up with, with a somewhat kind of moderately regressive state and local 
um, burden. But that's really only, as you kind of alluded to, taking in half the picture. We really need to talk about uh, including transfers, government income transfers in that equation, because if you don't do that, it really makes the fiscal system that we have look much more regressive than it actually is. And now you mentioned transfers there. Could you quickly define what those are for us? Yeah, yeah. So you know, that's kind of any um, you know income transfer that would that the government kind of uh, moves from one taxpayer to another. I mean, you can think about um, this kind of runs the spectrum from you know uh, cash payments to in kind uh, transfers. So we're talking about things like Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP. You know, the uh, child health insurance program at the state level. Social Security trust fund payments, um, you know, th th those are the kind of things that we're talking about here. We're not focusing on all government spending like public education or national defense. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. But uh, one of the things that we're, you know, focusing on here are just the, uh, the transfer payments themselves. And transfers, those tend to, um, I don't want to overgeneralize here, but those, it seems to be people kind of middle class, lower income receive more government transfers than maybe those at the top, yeah? Yeah, that's true. I mean, I think we should acknowledge that everybody across the income spectrum is a recipient, I should say, shouldn't say everybody, but uh, all quintiles <laughs> receive government transfers to a certain degree. Um, but you're right that um, the number of, the amount of, of uh, revenue that's being shifted down to uh, the lower quintiles, it's certainly higher in the uh, bottom 40%. Okay, so in, in this study that you put out recently, uh, which, as always, we'll link to this in the show notes, but it was titled America's Progressive Tax and Transfer System, Federal, State, and Local Tax and Transfer Distributions. Um, so you guys went into this kind of looking at progressivity, including government transfers into the equation, too. Um, what was, like, some kind of key takeaways that you found throughout the course of this research? What really stuck out to you that you think people should keep in mind here? Yeah, well, what we found was if you would look only at the tax structure, that the federal tax structure is quite progressive. The state and local level is uh, moderately regressive, and, and most of that regressivity is concentrated in the bottom 20%, and then it gets quite flat across the remaining four quintiles. But when you include the transfers, which you really have to do, because a lot of the total, the, the comprehensive household income, as it's referred to in the paper of those lowest income households most of that is coming from transfers and so they will be able to you know pay or bear a larger amount of the tax burden a larger amount than they would have been able to if you just restricted them to their market derived income so um, you really are kind of cutting a lot of income out of the denominator when you're doing that calculation of how what's the effective tax rate for these lowest income earning households if you're keeping that transfer income back. So a couple of things that we found here from this study that I thought are, are particularly interesting. Um, the lowest quintile experienced a combined tax and transfer rate uh, of negative 127%. So what does that actually mean? That means that for every dollar that lowest quintile, a household in the lowest quintile earned, they received an additional $1.27 from the government. So the top quintile had a rate of positive almost 31%. So that means that um, they paid just under 31 cents 
for every dollar earned. Uh, another thing that I thought was pretty interesting here is when we talk about where those transfer payments come from, uh, the top quintile, the top 20% of households funded 90% or $1.6 trillion of all the government transfers in 2019. Okay. So for every dollar of tax born, that top quintile received only 11 cents in gross government transfers. So that is in contrast to the bottom quintile, which received $6.17 in government transfers for every dollar of tax born. So, you know, I think that just those couple statistics alone illustrate really how important it is to, to factor in the, the transfer factor in. Yeah. So when you really bring those transfers into it, that is, it kind of paints this really clear picture of progressivity just kind of being played out. Those at the bottom paying less, receiving more, those at the top paying more and also kind of receiving less for what they pay. Um, and I guess my last question here is a wrap up this first section. Uh, you touched on why we should consider transfers in this debate, um, and especially that data you cited there. I mean, it, it becomes even more evident. Um, but I guess my last question here is, are much, most of these transfers coming from the federal government, or are there some states where transfers are pretty significant, or you know, does it kind of vary from state to state? Yeah, well, I think if you break that down, you'll, you'd probably find that it would vary um, in magnitude by state, right? I mean, depending on if you looked at Wyoming versus California, you're probably seeing a difference in the magnitude of the transfer payments. But just kind of speaking generally, the vast majority of the transfers that are going to those lowest earning households, that's all coming from, by and large, coming from the federal government. We've got an interesting breakdown of that in the paper. In terms of transfers received, the lowest quintile, so for every dollar born in federal taxes, the lowest quintile receives $23.36 from the federal government. That contrasts with the state and local transfers, where if they are bearing $1 in state and local tax, they're only receiving $1.15. That gives you a bit of an idea. Uh, well, with that, Tim, we will be right back. We are back. This is our section we call Myths and Misconceptions. We tackle some common talking points around these ideas we explore here on this podcast and get to the bottom of it. Are they true? Or are they not? Is it more than meets the eye? And we will do that just now. Uh, so, Tim, often when we talk about progressivity, um, especially at the state level, too, um, I'm sure we can point to a dozen states where there's a million tax proposals being thrown out or, you know, tax cuts, the middle class being thrown out, uh, what have you. But often, especially when we talk about tax hikes, on top earners out of sake of fairness or trying to make things more progressive, advocates often go to right away. They can afford it. This will not impact their lives. Uh, this will not have an impact on the state's economy doing these tax hikes on these you know people at the top. Um, is that true? Do tax hikes on top earners not impact a state's competitive standing? Yeah, so the top rate that is really instrumental in a state's economic competitiveness. And uh, I, I find it very difficult to get on board with people's ability to, to determine who can and cannot pay a certain tax. Um, and that's one of the things I think that this study actually really is helpful with. 
because what this study does is it doesn't just focus on who pays a tax, who remits the tax, who's writing the check to the Department of Revenue. It focuses on who is actually bearing the burden of the tax. And so a legislator uh, or a legislative body might have this idea that, oh, well, the, the higher income earners can can afford this or corporations can afford this. And so let's just increase taxes and it'll help kind of the the blue collar class or the, you know, the, the, the poorest among us, you know. And that, while that might be well-intentioned, what it actually... What we find is that a lot of that burden ends up getting shifted to exactly the people that they're trying to avoid. So you end up with things like the corporate income tax. It may be paid by the corporation, but it's borne by the employees in the form of lower wages, flatter wages, where you don't get a maybe an increase as often, fewer job opportunities, more automation as companies shift away to more affordable means of production than just labor. or a higher cost of finished goods, which is ultimately paid for by the workers and they go to the sort. So, and that's what we see here. And, and you can really kind of get into the details of it and some of the appendices of this paper. It's important just to note, I think, that none of these tax changes happen in a vacuum. These financial resources will flow kind of like water to the point where they are kind of best taken care of, where their return on investment is the highest. And so if you're a state, like we see this in Massachusetts a lot right now, that's a state that I spend quite a bit of time covering. They raised their top individual income tax rate by 80% last fall. And now there is uh, the discussion is just dominated by fears of tax uncompetitiveness about business owners who are a lot of these small businesses who are filing their tax returns and they through the individual income tax that are subject to this tax hike. There, all sorts of people are afraid of you know, them fleeing to places like New Hampshire, Florida, because those places don't have an individual income tax at all. So where is that breaking point for people? Hard to tell, which is another reason why people, I think policymakers should be cautious about how, about being too flip with like, oh, they can afford it. Well, you don't know all the people who are potentially exposed to this. Yeah, that's gonna be my, my next question. We even talked about at the start of this podcast, you and I from a young age, noticing people willing to travel, you know, 20 minutes just to experience a different tax liability, tax burden. Uh, you mentioned Massachusetts there. So you're saying that we do see evidence that when the rates go up, it does kind of make people who are mobile say, I can keep being mobile. I don't need to stay put here where the taxes are going to keep increasing. Absolutely. And that's what a lot of the research actually bears out too. You can look at a lot of these academic uh, journal articles, studies, you see that it's very difficult to actually achieve long-term redistribution through the state tax codes because it's so easy for so many people to avoid them, especially in a small geographic area like New England, where a lot of um, the people that are maybe affected by these increases can still maintain a lot of their connections, a lot of their social ties. You know, they can still uh, cheer on their sports teams from, uh, you know, places like Manchester, New Hampshire. It's only 45 minutes to Boston, you know. Um, and so it's not super difficult to avoid that kind of stuff. Um, Especially when the Patriots claim the entire Northeast corridor too, you know, no one's, <laughs> no one's stuck. That's right. Yeah. And the, and that's, that's even, uh, I think more so in the, uh, in the kind of new era of remote work that we're in nowadays. Wow. So as, as we're wrapping up here, let's talk about kind of that remote work aspect. Um, if this current focus that 
a lot of policymakers might have right now on progressivity might be, even if well-intentioned, a little misplaced. Uh, where do you think the effort should be here when lawmakers are considering reforms to their income tax codes? Yeah, well, I think instead of trying to kind of gerrymander the tax code to fit a particular, um, you know, a particular preconceived outcome, I think they should look for the opportunities to make their tax codes more neutral, you know, simpler, stable, transparent. And I think doing that helps everyone. You're setting an even playing field for people's businesses to succeed or fail on the merits, as opposed to whether, you know, or not they get their business or their industry is the subject of a tax credit. When you take the kind of thumb off the, uh, the scale with taxes, you really kind of, you know, that's, that's really the, the I think we, do, we don't get too much into the fairness, but that's, a, I think, the, one of the fairest ways to do it, um, as opposed to having legislators kind of pick the winners and losers. Uh, there's, 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 an, I'm not going to call it an old song. It's probably from 2005, but there's a song I like called For Pessimists, I'm Pretty Optimistic. Um, Tim, I don't know if you fall optimistic or pessimistic here, but do you think we're going to keep seeing just a push for more progressive tax codes? Um, or do you think there might be momentum to take a step back and kind of focus more on neutrality in state houses? Um, one of the things that I'm really interested in at the on the state team here is it just how much diversity there is in policy amongst the 50 states. Louis Brandeis, the uh, late associate Supreme Court justice, uh, had said that famously that states are the laboratory of democracy. And that's, I think, really well suited here for the, the tax policy debate. Uh, are we going to see tax codes become even more progressive? Yes, in some states. But in other states, uh, we're, we're seeing a trend of tax cuts, of flattening the, the uh, individual income tax codes in these states. In the, in the last year, more states have flattened their income tax. I think we're on five now. Prior to that, only four had done it ever since they had uh, started levying individual income taxes. You know, what we're seeing, I think, is this continuation of this experiment that we talked about earlier, where some states are trying to raise rates on wealthier people. You see wealth tax proposals in certain states, but those are kind of competing with lower uh, rates and flatter rates in just as many states across the country, if not more. So um, it's just, I think, a really interesting time to be um, examining state okay. tax policy. Um, well, Tim, thank you for joining us today. This was an informed discussion as always. And as you mentioned, there are a lot of states moving right now. Um, and you and your team do a great job keeping up with the latest, keeping a post on your website of what's going on. We appreciate that. Um, so what else are you working on uh, this spring that people can expect from you down the pipeline? Yeah, so this spring is, we're really still uh, full steam ahead at, at keeping up with state-by-state -state analyses, uh, tracking bills that are moving through various legislatures. When that starts to kind of ramp down here in the next month or two, as many states um, adjourn and, and uh, finish their business for the year, we'll start transitioning to some of our longer projects. I would look for a study to come out on the, the impact of corporate income tax rate changes, both increases and decreases in the effect on wages and salaries. I'd look for that to come out sometime this summer. Maybe uh, maybe some work on migration, where people are ending up as a result of some of these tax changes. So those are a couple things to keep an eye out for. And those are things we'll be sure to keep you guys updated with as well. Uh, Tim, if people want to follow your work, where can they find you on Twitter? Well, I have to say I'm not as prolific a uh, Twitter user as some on my team, but uh, <laughs> they can follow me at uh, T.E. Vermeer. And... Uh, 
I'll try to keep him well informed. <laughs> and of course, you can follow his work too at taxfoundation.org. Well, Tim, once again, thank you, and we'll be sure to have you on again soon. Thanks, Jesse. The Deduction is produced by Dan Carbajal. To learn more about the Tax Foundation and The Deduction, visit us online at taxfoundation.org slash podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn at Tax Foundation, as well as on Twitter at Deduction Pod. Thank you, and we'll see you next time on The Deduction.